Welcome to Hub History, the show that brings you fascinating stories from Boston history. This is episode 27, Burned at the Stake. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. Just a note before we get started. First of all, we frankly described several acts of brutal violence in the show this week. And we're also going to be dealing with matters of race this week, and at times using the racial language of our 17th and 18th century sources, which are not the terms we'd use today. If you usually listen to the show with children, you may want to consider listening to this episode alone first, and then deciding if it's appropriate to share with them. We're local history buffs and former tour guides, and it seems like everyone who comes to visit our city believes that the accused Salem witches were burned at the stake. While it's true that European witch trials sometimes ended in burning, that never happened in Massachusetts. The few women who were convicted as witches in Boston and the 14 women and six men who were executed as a result of the Salem witch trials were all hanged, all except Giles Corey, who was pressed to death when he didn't enter a plea. Witchcraft was not only a crime against the state, it was also considered a deep offense against God. But for this terrible crime, the sentence was hanging. And yet, there are two instances in Boston history in which women were executed by burning them at the stake one in 1681, and one in 1755. What crime could possibly be worse than witchcraft in Puritan Massachusetts? What crime would carry a sentence of execution by fire? We're going to explore those questions this week, but first, it's time to take a look at what's coming up in Boston history. Monday is May 1st, and on May 1st, 1627, the white settlers in a community located in today's Quincy decided to throw a party. The community was founded as a trading venture known as Mount Wollaston, one of a number of commercial settlements on Boston Harbor prior to the Puritan Great Migration. The indentured servants who made up most of the workers in Mount Wollaston rebelled in 1626, setting up a new, free community that they called Marymount. The white settlers considered themselves as equals and freely associated with the local Native Americans. Their de facto leader, Thomas Morton, said that there were two types of people in New England— Christians and infidels, and the infidels were most full of humanity and more friendly than the other. In 1627, Morton and his merry band decided to celebrate the traditional English holiday of May Day. They would host a huge feast, raise a maypole, invite their Massachusetts neighbors, and hopefully attract some brides. Thomas Morton described the festivities. The inhabitants of Marymount did devise amongst themselves to have revels and merriment after the old English custom, and therefore brewed a barrel of excellent beer and provided a case of bottles to be spent, with other good cheer, for all comers of that day. And upon May Day they brought the maypole to the place appointed with drums, guns, pistols, and other fitting instruments for that purpose, and there erected it with the help of savages that came thither of purpose to see the manner of our revels. A goodly pine tree of eighty foot long was reared up, with a pair of buck's horns nailed on it, somewhat near unto the top of it, where it stood as a fair sea mark for directions, how to find the way to mine host of Merry Mount. When word reached the Plymouth Pilgrims, they were shocked that someone was celebrating the old pagan holiday of May Day. Governor William Bradford took a dim view of the party, saying, They set up a maypole, drinking and dancing about it many days together inviting the Indian women for their consorts, dancing and frisking together like so many fairies, or furies rather, and worse practices, as if they had anew revived and celebrated the feasts of the Roman goddess Flora, or the beastly practices of the mad Bacchanalians. 
One imagines that he just couldn't stand the thought of someone having that much fun while Plymouth starved and struggled. The party was a great success and was repeated the following May. However, the month after that, an armed militia from Plymouth took over Marymount and arrested Morton, putting an end to the fun. We'll have the full story of Marymount in a future episode on pre-Puritan settlements on Boston Harbor, and you can check the show notes this week at hubhistory.com slash 027 for an artist's rendition of the maypole being chopped down. For a different perspective on the early siege of Boston, here is a letter written on May 2nd, 1777, by the wife of a British soldier who had been captured during the march on Concord and Lexington. Loving brothers and sisters, the 19th of April, the engagement happened, and my husband was wounded and taken prisoner, but they use him well, and I am striving to get to him, as he is very dangerous, but it is almost impossible to get out or in or to get anything, for we are forced to live on salt provisions entirely, and they are building batteries around the town, and so are we, for we are expecting them to storm us, and are expecting more troops every day. My husband is now lying in one of their hospitals, at a place called Cambridge, and there are now forty or fifty thousand of them gathered together, and we are not four thousand at most. It is very troublesome times, for we are expecting the town to be burnt down every day, and I believe we are sold, and I hear my husband's leg is broke, and my heart is broke. Wednesday is May 3rd. On May 3rd, 1962, the design for Boston's new City Hall was unveiled. The city government had long ago outgrown the building we now know as Old City Hall on School Street, but there was little agreement about what should replace it. The historic but struggling Scully Square neighborhood would be leveled to make way for, well, something. Some designs pictured a very bland office block, one looked like an upturned rowboat, and one looked like a graceful reimagining of the Roman Colosseum. So, of course, the winning design was a triumph of brutalist architecture, a tall, imposing structure of angles and poured concrete. After the formal unveiling, a model of the new city hall went on display at Boston's Museum of Fine Arts. A headline in the Boston Globe said, It will grow on you, three architects predict. Fifty-five years later, I can confidently tell you, it did not. On May 4th, 1775, a worried Tory father wrote to his sons in Freetown from Boston. Thomas Gilbert was a native of Massachusetts, had served in King George's War, in the French and Indian War, and would go on to serve on the British side in the Revolution, before being exiled to Nova Scotia with his family at the end of the war. On the 27th of April, I left the ship, took passage on board a packet sloop on the first instant, in health arrived here, where I expect to stay till the rebels are subdued, which I believe will not be long first, as the ships and troops are daily expected. My greatest fears are, you will be seduced or compelled to take arms with these deluded people, Dear sons, if those wicked sinners the rebels entice you, believe them not, but die by the sword rather than be hanged as rebels, which will certainly be your fate sooner or later if you join them, or be killed in battle, and will be no more than you deserve. Friday is May 5th. Back in the early 20th century, the Boston Americans, precursor to today's Red Sox, played at the Huntington Avenue grounds. Home plate was on today's Northeastern University campus. And on May 5, 1904, the Americans faced off in a home game against the Philadelphia Athletics. The Athletics pitcher had embarrassed Boston in two previous games, and had been taunting the team in the papers leading up to their May 5th game. This game 
would be different. Cy Young was pitching for Boston, and he pitched the first perfect game in modern baseball history. Now, I'm not a sports ball fan, but a perfect game is when a pitcher doesn't allow a single opposing player to get on base. No hits, no walks, no struck batters, nothing. To date, there have only been 21 perfect games in the major league. Young set a number of pitching records in his career, and some still stand, including the most wins by any pitcher. The year after he died, the Cy Young Award was introduced to honor the best pitchers in the league. Today, a statue of Cy Young marks the former home of Boston baseball, just in front of Northeastern's Churchill Hall. On May 6, 1970, Mayor Kevin White announced a massive revitalization project for Faneuil Hall. Built in 1824-26 under the administration of Mayor Josiah Quincy to supplement the market space provided by Faneuil Hall, Quincy Market, actually named the Faneuil Hall Market Building, and the North and South Market Street Buildings, were the nation's first urban renewal project. The complex was designed by architecture Alexander Paris and built at a cost of $150,000 on what had been the town dock. The dock had become cluttered with scows selling oysters, temporary wooden sheds, rubbish and dead cats, and was considered a blighted area. The Faneuil Hall Markets Project calls for the creation of a unique six-acre historic district that will include small shops and office space, outdoor cafes, restaurants, and a pedestrian mall. It is a major effort to save one of Boston's, and the nation's, most historic and architecturally significant building complexes. Quincy Market and the Market Street buildings especially have undergone considerable exterior alteration and interior deterioration. The restoration project, using Paris's original plans and modern rehabilitation methods, will return them to their original appearance and prepare the interiors for further adaptation to modern commercial needs. Finally, Sunday is May 7th. On May 7th, 1934, the USS Constitution arrived back in Boston after a triumphant tour. For decades, she had languished as a prison barge and as a receiving ship for recruits as they were first inducted into the Navy. Finally, in the 1920s, the nation began to recognize her value. The Navy recommissioned the ship, and schoolchildren around the nation donated pennies to pay for the restoration. She entered dry dock in 1927 and stayed until 1931, undergoing a complete overhaul. In 1931, the Constitution embarked on a grand tour of the United States. She visited 90 ports on the Atlantic, Gulf Coast, and Pacific, cruising 34,000 miles from Bar Harbor, Maine to Bellingham, Washington, and back, traversing the Panama Canal in both directions. In the show notes this week, we'll have a link to a series of scrapbooks kept by the sailors who were aboard the Constitution for that epic voyage. You can read those and notes on all this week's historical anniversaries at hubhistory.com slash 027. And that brings us to the series of sad stories that we want to talk about this week. Researching this episode has been depressing, and at times exhausting, but we hope that you'll find it interesting. Late one night in July of 1681, two houses caught on fire in the sleepy village of Roxbury. First, the home of Dr. Thomas Swan, and then, a few minutes later, the home of Joshua Lamb. Both fires started near a door, not by the fireplace and the fires were quickly determined to be the result of arson. Suspicion soon fell on an African-American woman named Mariah, who was enslaved in Joshua Lamb's household. 
She was arrested, along with two enslaved men from nearby households, and imprisoned in Boston to wait for the next session of the Court of Assistance. At trial, Mariah pleaded guilty to the charge of arson. She described how she carried out the crimes while her friends, Chevalier and Coffee, watched from beneath a nearby fence. First, she snuck into Dr. Swan's house and left a smoldering coal from the fireplace on a wooden floor in front of the bedroom door. The coal slowly allowed the floor to catch fire, giving Mariah a chance to go on to the next house. She had to break into the Lamb household where she was enslaved because they kept the house locked at night. She managed to get the back door open and did the same thing there, using two wood chips to carefully hold a hot coal, which she placed in front of a bedroom door. Not only did this give her a chance to get out before the fire really caught, it also made it that much harder for the residents inside to escape, since the epicenter of the fire was at their bedroom door. It wasn't the first time that arson was used by enslaved people as an act of resistance, and it wouldn't be the last. John Winthrop's diary records the 1641 case of a Boston woman named Bridget Pierce. She had brought a collection of fine and valuable linen goods from Old England, and she had very particular instructions on how her enslaved maid should care for it. Each day, it should be newly washed and curiously folded and pressed, and so left in the parlor overnight. One night, the maid went into the room very late, and let fall some snuff of the candle upon the linen, so as by the morning all the linen was burned to tender, and the boards underneath, and some stools, and part of the wainscot burned, and never perceived by any in the house, though some lodged in the chamber overhead, and no ceiling between. In the 1660s, a woman in Hartford complained that, quote, Indians and Negroes had burned her property, and petitioned the colony for compensation. And in February 1681, Increase Mather recorded in his diary that there had been, quote, several houses set on fire in Boston and Roxbury at different times by Negroes. Fire was a tool of resistance, and one of the only ones available to the enslaved. As Wendy Warren, a historian of New England slavery, puts it, because fire was widely available and essential to early modern life, it could not be kept from slaves. Mariah was facing the death penalty. It's a little bit unclear from my sources whether anyone died in the fires she set. Increase Mather's diary says that a child was burnt to death, but none of the other records note that, and Mariah was never charged with murder. Either way, arson was still a capital crime under a Massachusetts law passed in 1652. And if any person of the age aforesaid, 16 years and upwards, shall after the publication hereof wittingly and willingly and feloniously set on fire any dwelling house, meeting house, storehouse, or shall in like manner set on fire any outhouse, barn, stable, lean-to, stack of hay, corn, or wood, or anything of like nature, whereby any dwelling house, meeting house, or storehouse cometh to be burnt, the party or parties vehemently suspected thereof shall be apprehended by warrant from one or more of the magistrates, and committed to prison, there to remain without bail till the next court of assistance, who, upon legal conviction by due proof or confession of the crime, shall adjudge such person or persons to be put to death, and to forfeit so much of his lands, goods, or chattels as shall make full satisfaction to the party or parties indemnified. Three days after Mariah set her two fires, an enslaved man named Jack was accused of setting fire to a house in Northampton by accident while looking for food to steal. After being given a hundred lashes by his owner, Samuel Wolcott, he vowed that he would hang himself if he ever got the chance, 
Instead, he escaped from his cruel owner and was on the run from the authorities. If fire was one tool of resistance that was always available to enslaved people, suicide was another. In this week's show notes, we'll link to an episode of the Ben Franklin's World podcast that deals with death, suicide, and slavery in colonial America, where you can hear more about why some slaves would choose self-destruction. Jack was brought to Boston and stood trial at the same court of assistance as Mariah. His case was also a capital case, despite no one having been injured in the fire he accidentally set. On September 6, 1681, the Court of Assistance, presided over by Massachusetts Bay Colony's governor, Simon Bradstreet, pronounced sentence on Mariah for arson. The prisoner at the bar pleaded and acknowledged herself to be guilty of the fact, and accordingly, the next day, being again brought to the bar, had sentence of death pronounced against her by the Honorable Governor, that she should go from the bar to the prison whence she came, and thence to the place of execution, and there be burned. The Lord be merciful to thy soul, said the Governor. Where the slave Jack had previously threatened to hang himself due to his owner's cruelty, the Court of Assistance would make that threat a reality. The same day, he received this sentence that he should go from the bar to the place whence he came, and there be hanged by the neck till he be dead, and then taken down and burnt to ashes in the fire with Mariah. The Lord be merciful to thy soul, said the governor. As we heard, the law called for arsonists to be executed, but the additional measures specified in these sentences went beyond just death. Burning a criminal's corpse was a form of punishment that continued after death denying the sufferer a Christian burial, and thus any chance of redemption during the Second Coming. It was not uncommon under English common law at the time for any felony considered particularly heinous. Mariah's sentence of burning at the stake was probably a form of lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. The Puritans of Massachusetts were strong believers in Mosaic law, which called for an eye for an eye, even when civil law had no such requirement. In this case, Jack was given the lighter sentence of death by hanging, as his arson was accidental, while Mariah was given burning for burning, since her act of arson was also seen as attempted murder. There's also a tradition in English law that many forms of execution were considered immodest when used on a woman. Torture, drawing, quartering, and hanging were all seen as too revealing of a woman's body, so Mariah's sentence may also have been an attempt to preserve her modesty. Coffey and Chevalier, the enslaved men who were charged as Mariah's accomplices, were sentenced to transportation. They were held in jail briefly, then put aboard ships headed for the Caribbean. There, they'd be pressed back into slavery on the sugar plantations, where the average lifespan for a slave was less than seven years. A few days after the sentencing, Increase Mather's diary records that they'd been carried out. 1681, September 22nd. There were three persons executed in Boston, an Englishman for a rape, a Negro man for burning a house at Northampton, and a Negro woman who burnt two houses at Roxbury July 12th, in one of which a child was burned to death. The Negro woman was burned to death, the first yet who has suffered such a death in New England. There is only one other recorded case of an execution by fire in the history of Massachusetts, almost 75 years after the death of Mariah and Jack. The second case takes place in 1755 during the administration of Governor William Shirley. 
This was well after the Puritan theocracy of early Massachusetts Bay came to an end, and during a time when, as we heard in last week's podcast, Boston was supposed to be the most refined, cultured city in North America, and yet it was still possible for a woman to be publicly burned at the stake. On July 1st of that year, a Charlestown resident named John Codman died. The next day, a coroner's inquest determined that he had been poisoned with arsenic, and suspicion fell on the enslaved members of his household. A man named Mark was arrested and interrogated, and he soon revealed a conspiracy to murder Codman. Mark was a literate man and had read the Bible. His scriptural study led him to believe no sin would be committed if he could end Codman's life without shedding his blood. Mark, along with enslaved women belonging to Codman named Phyllis and Phoebe, had quietly reached out to slaves in the households of two Boston doctors to try to acquire poisons with which they could kill their owner. One of the enslaved men they approached turned them down, while another provided a quantity of arsenic. Another enslaved man gave them a quantity of a material known in the sources as black lead. That is probably a form of lead sulfide crystals known today as galena. It may have been used in glazes by a Charlestown potter. Phoebe and Phyllis would mix small quantities of arsenic and black lead into Codman's food, sometimes serving it to him directly and sometimes allowing his daughter to serve the tainted food. Finally, on July 1st, they were successful, and Codman was killed by the arsenic in his gruel. Phyllis and Mark were charged with the crime known as petite treason, and it was the only time in the history of Massachusetts when this crime was prosecuted. Where the crime we now know as treason, known then as high treason, was an offense against royalty, petite treason, or petty treason, was reserved for others who attempted to upend the natural hierarchy of a very hierarchical society. As one historian recorded, this crime was restricted to three classes of cases. One, where a servant killed his master or mistress. Two, where a wife killed her husband. And three, where a clergyman killed his prelate, or the superior to whom he owed canonical obedience. The sentence in the case of a woman was that she be burned to death, and in the case of a man, that he be drawn to the place of execution and there hanged by the neck until he be dead. After their arraignment, the defendant stood trial in the courtroom of Stephen Sewell, who was the nephew of Samuel Sewell, the famous judge who presided over and later apologized for the Salem witch trials. Pages and pages of testimony from both Mark and Phyllis are preserved. Under questioning, Phyllis admitted to knowingly poisoning Codman, suggested that Mark was the ringleader, and implicated Phoebe as an accomplice. Mark, in turn, admitted to procuring the poison and providing it to Phoebe and Phyllis, along with instructions on how to use it, saying he had asked for enough poison to kill three pigs. Phoebe turned state's evidence and testified against the other two. On September 6th, the court pronounced its sentence against both Phyllis and Mark. Whereas the said Phyllis and Mark at our court aforesaid were each of them convicted of the crime respectively alleged to be committed by them as aforesaid by the verdict of twelve good and lawful men of our said county, and were by the consideration of our said court adjudged to suffer the pains of death. Therefore, as to us appears of record the execution of which said sentence doth still remain to be done, we command you, therefore, that on Thursday the 18th day of September instant, between the hours of one and five o'clock in the daytime, you cause the said Phyllis to be drawn from our gal in the county of Middlesex aforesaid, where she now is, 
to the place of execution, and there be burnt to death. And also that on the same day, between the hours of one and five of the clock in the daytime, you cause the said Mark to be drawn from the gal in our county of Middlesex aforesaid, where he now is, to the place of execution, and there be hanged up by the neck until he be dead. For her testimony, Phoebe was able to escape trial. Her fate's not entirely clear, but some records indicate that she was transported. That is, sent off to a brutal and likely short life in the sugar plantations of the Caribbean. The Boston Evening Post records the final end of Phyllis and Mark on September 18, 1755. Thursday last, in the afternoon, Mark, a Negro man, and Phyllis, a Negro woman, both servants to the late Captain John Codman of Charlestown, were executed at Cambridge for poisoning their said master, as mentioned in this paper some weeks ago. The fellow was hanged, and the woman was burned at a stake about ten yards distant from the gallows. They both confessed themselves guilty of the crime for which they suffered, acknowledged the justice of their sentence, and died very penitent. After execution, the body of Mark was brought down to Charlestown Common and hanged in chains on a gibbet erected there for that purpose. Imagine for a moment how terrible that death must be. A sturdy wooden post was driven into the ground with a pile of wood around it. Phyllis would have been led to this pyre and firmly tied to the post. A torch would have been touched to the kindling, starting the bonfire around her. The pain would have been almost instant and excruciating, as her 18th century garb burned from her body. She would have been entirely unable to cry out, due to another tradition of burning at the stake. As a historian recorded, to mitigate the sufferings of felons at the stake, the executioner usually fastened one end of a cord to the stake, and bringing this cord around the neck of the woman, pulled it tightly the moment the torch was applied, and continued to strain until life was extinct, which, unless the cord was sooner burnt asunder, generally happened before the condemned had suffered much from the intensity of the flames. I question that historian's assertion that the condemned didn't suffer much. I don't think the sensation of being strangled distracted her in any meaningful way from the sensation of being burned alive. The strangling was likely for the comfort of the crowd. It kept her cries from disturbing the witnesses of her death, as she wouldn't have been able to draw enough breath to scream. In that Boston Evening Post article, it mentions that Mark's body was brought to Charlestown Common and hanged in chains on a gibbet. The practice of gibbeting a body was well established in England and North America at that time. After execution, the body of the condemned would be hung from a gallows-like structure, either in a cage or wrapped up in iron chains. This was done publicly, both as a deterrent to future crime and as another form of punishment after death, to deny the condemned a Christian burial and any hope of redemption in the resurrection. In some cases, the body would be painted with tar as a preservative, and it's likely that the chains a body was wrapped in would help maintain its structural integrity. There's no record that Mark's body was tarred, but there is ample record that his body hung in Charlestown for many years. One account of the case recounts Josiah Bartlett's research, stating that the body of Mark is said by Dr. Bartlett to have remained on the gibbet until a short time before the Revolution. Certain it is that when Dr. Caleb Ray passed through Charlestown on the first day of June 1758, on his way from Danvers to join the regiment of which he had been chosen surgeon in the expedition against Ticonderoga, 
He found the body hanging and, having examined it, recorded in his journal that Mark's skin was but very little broken, although he had hung there near three or four years. We have no firm account stating when Mark's body was cut down or decomposed, but it remained long enough for its location to become a local landmark. It remained a landmark when Paul Revere embarked on his famous ride some 20 years later. In a 1798 letter to Jeremy Belknap, the minister and founder of the Massachusetts Historical Society, Revere described the beginning of his ride to Lexington. I set off upon a very good horse. It was then about 11 o'clock and very pleasant. After I had passed Charlestown Neck and got nearly opposite where Mark was hung in chains, I saw two men on horseback under a tree. Sandwiched between these two tragic executions by fire is another case one will call a near miss. After a series of suspicious fires in March of 1723, an enslaved man named Diego was arrested. He confessed to burning the house belonging to his master, John Powell, but under questioning indicated that there was a larger conspiracy among the African Americans in Boston to burn the town as an act of resistance. Indeed, even while Diego was behind bars, a series of arsons and attempted arsons continued. Governor Dummer issued a proclamation blaming, quote, some villainous and desperate Negroes or other dissolute people for entering into a wicked and horrid combination to burn the town. In response, the town formed a military watch to hunt for the perpetrators. In a town meeting on April 15th, Boston passed a series of restrictions against, quote, Indians, Negroes, and mulattoes, which imposed a curfew prohibiting them from assembling, from leaving their master's houses at night, and even restricted what type of work they could do. Though the town watch had been charged with apprehending, quote, Negro and mulatto servants who were out after 10 p.m. since at least 1736. Against this backdrop, some called for Diego to be burned at the stake, as Mariah had been, as an imposition of Mosaic law, burning for burning. A counter-argument came from an unexpected quarter. Reverend Cotton Mather not only argued against the sentence of death by burning, he went as far as suggesting that the fires were God's retribution for the white citizens' unjust treatment of their enslaved brethren. First, the burning of the town has been threatened, and there have been many fires kindled. Our God calls us not only to thankfulness for our preservation, but also to consider what we have to do, that such a desolation by those or some other hands may be prevented. Contention, burning for burning, was required by the word of the glorious God fulfilled by his hand. And considering by what hands the town has been so endangered, there can be nothing more seasonable and reasonable than for us to consider whether our conduct with relation to our African slaves be not one thing for which our God may have a controversy with us. Are they always treated according to the rules of humanity? And much more, Christianity, which is improved and ennobled humanity. Are they treated as those that are of one blood with us, and those that have immortal souls in them, and are not mere beasts of burden? In the end, eight enslaved Africans and one white indentured servant were arrested for the 1723 arsons. One died in prison while awaiting trial. Five were acquitted. There is no record of the outcome for two, and Diego, who had confessed to the capital crime of arson, was sentenced to death. However, 
Despite the wishes of some Bostonians, he was executed by hanging and was not burned. Though there are only the two recorded cases of people being executed by fire in Massachusetts, the possibility of burning at the stake hung over the heads of Massachusetts citizens, especially enslaved women, for a century. From the case of Mariah, that was recorded by Increase Mather in 1681, to the close call of Diego, as pondered by his son Cotton Mather in 1723, to the sad case of Phyllis, who was burned to death in 1755. The laws regarding petite treason remained in effect until 1785, being repealed after Massachusetts adopted its constitution. That same year, Cotton Mather's son, the Reverend Samuel Mather, passed away, meaning that the law spanned three full generations of the Mather family. During this long era, many white people committed arson. None of them were burned to death. To learn more about the history of execution by fire in Massachusetts, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 027. We'll have a link to a paper on the case of Mariah presented at a meeting of the Colonial Society of Massachusetts in 1900. An article about Phyllis and Mark's case published by the Massachusetts Historical Society in 1883. And a 2014 dissertation on slavery and other forms of unfreedom in colonial Boston. We drew heavily from these three articles in writing this week's episode. We'll also have links to an episode of Ben Franklin's World dealing with slavery and suicide, an Amazon link to the book New England Bound on slavery in early New England, and the text of Paul Revere's letter that used Mark's gibbeted body as a landmark. If you aren't depressed enough already, we'll also include some reading on execution by fire outside Massachusetts. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcasts at hubhistory.com. We're at Hub History on Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Hub History. Or you can go to HubHistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on iTunes, we'd love it if you could write us a brief review. It's the best way to help others find the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time with a show about the 1919 Boston Police Strike.